Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm really, really excited to have Sean Wilfong on the phone. Uh, Sean's here in Charlotte with me, and I uh, met him several years ago, and he's he's a guy I really <clears throat> admire because I personally visit his restaurants and, and know how how much I enjoy them and uh, how good the experience is, and just uh, he and his partners have a fantastic reputation here in town. Um, Dan Mortimer's, um, Leroy Fox, Cal Bell, and Sean actually, and we'll talk a little bit about this during the interview, is is a temporary or interim CEO of a, a local very successful brewery here in Charlotte. So, uh, Sean, thanks so, so much for taking the time to do this today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want, we'll get into some of that stuff um, about what you kind of focus on right now, but just to kind of um, level set a little bit, let's just start with your story and how you got involved in the restaurant business because I know it wasn't something that you were <clears throat> have always been a part of. So what what prompted that? When I was 14 and a half, I um, took my third grade teacher up on her offer. She told me if I ever needed a job to call her. And so in between eighth and ninth grade, I called her up and her husband owned a very successful restaurant that was attached to South Park Mall called Charlie's. It was there for a long, long time. And they hired me as a dishwasher. And I worked there for nine years. I worked up through the kitchen, ran every position there except for the center of the line, and then got into the front of the house and bus tables and wait tables and bar back and bartended. Uh, And they were really excellent operators that had a great philosophy on taking care of their staff. And they taught me everything they could about the restaurant business. Uh, Graduated from college with an accounting degree and got out of the restaurant business and told myself I would never go back. (laughs) Why is that? Um, You know, it's a challenging business. I think most people uh, discount. The majority of restaurants are open seven days a week. So you are either in the store or responsible for staff from depending on what the business model is. But for us, our first employees are in at 7.30 in the morning. And most nights we have the last people leaving 2 a.m., 3.30 a.m. Um, so it's a lot of hours to be responsible for people. And it's a lot of days to handle issues. And uh, you go the whole year. So it's not a traditional job where you put your hours in, you get to go home to your family and spend nice quiet nights at home doing things with them in the weekends. It's kind of a everyday, all-day venture. So you decided you'd never do it again. Uh, you pursued other interests, and then what happened? <laughs> so in the downturn, uh, there was a, a guy who lived in my building that got into some financial trouble. He was building custom homes, and he had a very small franchise coffee shop, PJ's Coffee, uh, that was located at Epicenter, and he had an interesting model that it was a coffee shop during the day. And then he tried to turn it into a lounge at night. And I think it was just confusing for the consumer. Uh, and it wasn't the best customer experience in there. And uh, my wife was talking to him one day and got word that he had this problem. And I asked him if, you know, there was a chance that we could help him out. And so we went in there and t- took a look at it and everything I knew about business and everything I knew about restaurants, I told myself, it seems almost impossible to lose money if I tried this venture. And so we put a team together and we 
uh, took it over. We closed on January 1st that year um, in 2009, and uh, I guess the rest is history. And that was Mortimer's. Yes, sir. Yeah, so we took PJ's Coffee, and the retail bay beside it had gone out of business. It was a sunglass store, and we combined the two. Um, we took assignment of the guy's lease, added the square footage with the landlord, uh, blew the walls out, and 57 days later, from closing to reopening, uh, under a completely new brand, new menu, new sign, uh redid the entire interior, built a bar, a kind of a substantial bar, and added a little bit of square footage and one additional bathroom. So to give a little more context to folks who don't know, you I mean, you were his, his landlord at the time, right? I was, yeah. I was in a partnership. I was the major, I was the minority owner, a very minority owner, kind of the operating partner. And uh, um, uh, the two majority um, owners wouldn't, cut us a deal for that space uh, unless we took the deal that the tenants had negotiated. So, which was probably to remove some moral hazard, the right thing to do. So we ended up just stepping into the business deals that were cut by the tenants to get the two majority owners of the shopping center to agree to allow us to take it over as a tenant. Okay. And then how many years after that did you open Leroy Fox? We started working on it the next year. Um, okay. We just, and then we opened uh, we opened three restaurants in four years. Three and four. Well, what happened then? So you got you you saw an opportunity. It was sort of a unique opportunity with with Mortimer's, but you prior to that had not. I'm guessing intended to to get into the restaurant business. Certainly, probably not to the extent that you have now. So tell me about that uh, transition. Yeah. So. My background, uh, I was working in real estate, so I think that I at least understand the fundamentals of trying to acquire real estate that'll give you a fighting chance to succeed in the restaurant game. Um, I think that's one of the key components to making sure that you have a location that helps you more than it hurts you. In the restaurant business, you need all, all the things you can going for you. Um, the business... I think it's fascinating and I've always been fascinated by restaurants because as a core philosophy, including when I worked in restaurants as a kid, I think the only reason to have a restaurant and to be open is to serve the public and everything that you do while you're open should be around the central tenant that you are in the customer service business. And if you don't have a deep love for customers, I don't think it's the place to be. And so we really focused on the customers when we opened Mortimer's. Um, the customers and the culture, I think, are the two most important things. And we kind of ran an experiment on both of those. And we really put together a collection of really great service industry people that I think were the difference in the success of the first restaurant. Uh, I mean, everyone that worked for us, um, you know, down to the guys in the back, our girls in the back washing dishes or cooking. Um, to the bus boys, to our security that we ran a couple nights a week when it was appropriate. They all just really cared about the customers. And so I think we were really fortunate to surround ourselves with some great people. And, uh, and, and to this day, I think the thing that we have been most successful uh, at doing is hiring uh, people that shared similar values to us. And I think, you know, back to your compliment in the beginning that you have had great experiences in our restaurants. And I'm sure like every restaurateur, 
there are a litany of people that have not had great experiences in our restaurants. Um, although we do work to try to minimize that, you know, you can't win every time. Um, but really we go out of our way to try to make the experience a hundred percent about the customer. So when you, when you were bringing in folks when you started and when you bring them in now, what do you think they see that's different working for you than they may have experienced somewhere else, given that you're able to attract really good people that share your philosophy? I think one thing, I think one thing that we do well is I think we just have a group of owners and operators that generally love being around other people. Uh, I just don't think that they would be great recluses to live, you know, in the middle of nowhere and try to be perfectly content by themselves. These are people that are energized by being around people. They love helping them out. I think the one thing that we recognize as an ownership group was the employees that you hire communicate and interact more with your customers on a daily basis than you do. And so if by extension you can hire a group of people that treat people similar to yourself, uh, I think that you can perpetuate uh, a, a culture that really is about taking care of each other. And when I say that, I mean, I believe that we should treat our employees better than any other employer because we want to retain the best employees. And we have really low turnover, I think, compared to the industry. Um, but Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, which I'm sure has been referenced a thousand times on these calls, is one of the best books about kind of life in general, I think. The outlook is so spot on. Everyone that works for us gets a copy, usually written with a note by one of us on the ownership side or the management side. I just think it's a profoundly impact book for service industry people. And so I wish I'd tell you that most of this we made up on our own. Um, and I think we had relatively high restaurant IQs just growing up in restaurants and doing all the jobs. But the book set in the table has been massively impactful to our culture. Well, you're right. There are a lot of folks I've spoken to that reference that book. And if you're listening, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. Um, it really is the foundation for what it seems like a lot of successful restaurant owners have followed suit with what Danny has done. So you really tip your hat to him. Uh, but then there's there's the reading it and understanding it and agreeing with it. But then there's the implementation and execution of that, which is, you know, where the rubber meets the road. So how... How do you um and how do you do you have a good process, a defined process that is for how you weed out people or try to weed out people that uh may know to say the right things in an interview but don't uh, don't live that out uh on the long run or um, have you gotten better at being able to figure those people out early on, or do you just have to hire quickly and fire quickly? Or what's your philosophy on that, Sean? Um, you know, we – I wish I could tell you that we were experts at this. I think uh, that's a classic predicament, right? People that interview extremely well and then, for whatever reason, can't perform up to their uh, stated impeccable service. Uh, that's what I'm looking for standard that they said that they could achieve when you interviewed them. So, I mean, we have the same predicament that I assume that everyone has where we 
feel really highly that we've got a great candidate, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't work out. Um, one thing that I think we've been really successful at, and I'm sure a lot of people do this, is we found some great service industry people early on, and we relied heavily upon recommendations from them for people that they felt were people that were like-minded or people that would fit into our culture. And so those are the best we found the most success with people that were referred by some of our best employees to us. And, and it's just sort of has perpetuated. We've hired outside of that circle and been successful and unsuccessful for various reasons. Um, we try to make changes very quickly when we find someone that's not up to our service standards. So, uh, but it's rare. I think that we've really had those issues. We've been very fortunate with the friends and family the other thing, too, is our customers have given us great employees over the years, especially uh, younger kids starting as busboys or hostesses that lived in the neighborhood that came there and, that you know, have gotten working age and their parents wanted them to come work for us. And they're great parents with great values and they teach your kids accountability uh, and ethics and morals. And so we've been really fortunate to have people from the neighborhood want us to employ their children who have kind of grown up to become great servers for us. Uh, you told me a story once. I'll never forget it. It really stuck out, and I think it's a wonderful example of what you're talking about, where you certainly uh, led by example. But tell, tell everybody the story about when you uh, were opening Cowbell or had just opened Cowbell, and it, was, it had been a previous restaurant, and uh, there was an issue with some ketchup bottle and a shirt and the cleaners will you, will you recount that story because i i've literally told that story a dozen times since then a few years ago and i thought it was fantastic yeah so cowbell was a restaurant called nick's burger that had gotten into some trouble and i just tell you that because we were on the bottom floor of a high-rise building in downtown charlotte and um that downtown lunch crowd is a finicky group right that has a fixed window to dine in and it is a kind of a killer be killed environment if you're going to perform and people come there and they have a meeting uh the margin of error in the whole entire process is very small and so we were in there um early on before we had changed the name it was still nick's burger bar and we kept the staff and so while we were designing and um and planning our brand change and the close of the restaurant. I was in there trying to meet the customers that come in there and find out what they liked and didn't like and what their needs were so that we could build a concept out that was more in line with the customers that were already there. And so this one particular day, the girls in the back were marrying ketchup um, from the prior uh, ownership group. And I guess something happened. The ketchup had fermented and I, put the ketchup bottle on the table. I didn't know that this was going to happen. And there was a, a group dining there in business uh, attire. And thank God he had his sport, his sport coat off, but he had a, a button-down shirt on. And when he opened, the ketchup bottle exploded all over him. Uh, and it was a, not a minor incident. It was a major explosion. I can't quite fully explain how it happened or what the uh, the chemistry is behind what happened in the bottle, but it was a disaster. And so not only do we have to perform and get their food out quickly, but I had a guy that I could not send back to work in the state that he was in. So while he was dining there, I found out his shirt size, and there was a Joseph A. Banks a couple buildings down 
at Bank of America Corporate Center. And so I ran down there and um, I bought him two different shirts. I didn't know which one was going to fit him the best. And uh, I ran him back and delivered him to him to the table side and uh, told him that I apologized profusely, but he could keep both shirts. And anyway, so he was uh, very happy, obviously, very happy with us. And um, still a customer. I see him in there frequently. We still laugh about that that shirt incident. But I just think that uh, it was the right thing to do. I don't think I did anything special. I just think you have a great responsibility when you're in restaurants to serve the public and not get them sick and play great food. And obviously if you trash someone's clothes on the shift, can't send them back to work for the rest of the day with a ketchup laden white button down. Didn't you, uh, love, didn't you pay for their meal too? And pay? And you, oh yeah. I comped the whole, the I meal, comped the like whole the, table. Yeah. I comped the whole table's meal for sure. I don't think yeah. that's something that you want to be a part of the, those situations. <laughs> we make a joke in our restaurant that that's a POTUS operation. That is the president of the United States type service interaction where everyone immediately goes to resolve any and all ill will for the brand that could ever leave our four walls. <laughs> well, that's great. And that actually leads me to, I mean, you, so you're the owner, you know, and you could leave and go get shirts and all that, but what, how do you take that story and, and, you know, help your staff learn how to replicate that type of response at least? I mean, is that, because that's it's different when it's you versus you know a server who's been there for six weeks or or something. Um, but I'm sure that that type of story is part of your your culture and your training. What? Tell me a little bit about that. We uh, we empower our employees to behave like we would in a situation like that. There is a hundred percent our fault. We are a hundred percent at fault for things like that. And for us, the inconvenience to the customer uh, is unacceptable. So each employee, each manager, they can own those situations. And we prefer that they own them to a resolution because we don't like to pass the buck and hope that someone resolves it. Uh, and I'm sure that we have some online reviews that were in situations where we didn't fully resolve it. Uh, but we do try to go out of our way when we can. So, I mean, if any employee that works for me has any situation like this, they know that if they're the one that runs and goes and buys that shirt, I will 100% reimburse them, and I would appreciate it. If I find out that they didn't go buy the shirt in a situation like that, they know that they will have some answering to do. So we we don't uh, we don't hold a different standard for ourselves that we hold for our employees. We try to put everyone in the same boat and they know that they are fully authorized to handle any customer complaint. And we prefer to go over the top to make a customer leave happy when they're unhappy uh, just because we think it's the right thing to do. So there've been countless examples of employees of mine leaving to buy a wall street journal for a customer who asked if we had one. We didn't, we don't even have newspapers in our restaurants, but I just tried to teach them that, listen, if we're slow and it is not an exuberant cost or puts us in duress. If it's a little request or someone says something or you hear someone say, oh, it's Janet's birthday, and you don't even have to ask the table, go in the back and get make a dessert for her and come out and deliver it to her and tell her it's on us. Or we've had employees um, for a little girl's birthday party one time, we overheard the parents talking about, I think it was her favorite cake, 
we didn't sell anything like it in the restaurant. So one of the employees drove down the street to a bakery and bought a $50 cake with candles and brought it back and presented it to the table. And the parents were wowed. And, uh, you know, it's those little things that make them come back over and over again, but it's also a way to make the world better. You know, it's a, changes the whole way they experience the day and that one little bit of happiness we hope they pass along and so if we could just do general acts of kindness for people within our four walls and try to make the world a better place as a core philosophy i think that is the type of culture that we are looking to build on for years well that's fantastic man i I, what i love about that is is that you can measure the cost of the shirt or the Wall Street Journal, or the $50 cake, but what you can't measure um, is is what that does for their experience for the restaurant. Their, it makes them a customer at life for life. It makes them want to go out and tell 50 people how great that restaurant is and how great the experience is. So um, that certainly is a, a – I, I love that philosophy. We share a lot of that um, in common. Uh, so I, I think that's fantastic, man. Um, let me ask you this. You were uh, in real estate and you mentioned the importance of knowing, you know, when a piece of real estate is going to set you up for success or when it may um, set you up for, you know, a struggle. What What are some things that you pass along to folks? Because that to me is, uh, if you don't have that expertise that you may have had, can be really tricky and, and as you said, can make or break you. What are you looking for? Generally, uh, I think real estate is a lot like human beings, right? Every property has little things about it that make it unique. And obviously the access, parking, those things are massively important, just kind of real estate 101. But then customer uh, engagement in an area for instance, for restaurants, I always think it's better for restaurants to be around other restaurants, or me personally. I think a lot of times consumers can't make a decision on what type of fare they want, but they'll generally head towards an area that has a bunch of options and just pick when they're there. And if that is the area where they frequent for food and then the resulting trip to that area would be dining in your restaurant one night, dining at the guy next to you the next night, and you can kind of keep them in that uh, in that trip circle. I think those are kind of massively impactful. I think sometimes people will make a decision for real estate because the rent is lower uh, at the expense of a lot of other very important inputs. Uh, and sometimes the most expensive rent isn't the best real estate deal either. So for us, we really like second generation restaurant space um, as a business philosophy, the failure rate so high that we feel like we could, if we can find the right space and we don't think it's a real estate problem, we think it was an operator problem or a concept problem. We feel like we can save a lot of money not having to put in air conditioning and sheetrock and electrical, but we can, redo the restaurant where it is a completely different customer experience and a completely different layout. And that money we try to save uh, and pass along to our customers on our menu pricing. 
So the real estate thing's tricky. It's sort of a gut instinct over doing tons of transactions that's hard to put into words. There's some buildings that I personally uh, shy away from for whatever the reasons are, and I've seen other operators go in and become widely successful, and then I think to myself, well, where did I go wrong on that one? And then the flip side, I've shied away from some that I thought were horrendous, and I've seen people go in and spend millions of dollars to try to make the place nice, and they've failed miserably. Uh, and so some of it I think is unquantifiable, but we, uh, but the real estate game, you know, they say location, location, that's the, you know, that's what everyone talks about. I do think that, that, um, you know, parking and access, and it's going to be interesting with Uber, you know, and as the more consumers go to that model, can you be successful at deploying restaurants in, um, areas where the parking was a, significant hurdle for the prior restaurateur um, mm. but because especially late night travels in urban areas you know it might not be so impactful anymore with this change in transportation and so does that allow some other great spaces that have generally not been great real estate spaces for restaurants to uh, kind of change the dynamic on that and I think the jury's still out but I do have my eye on a couple spots that I think could be great real estate if that is the truth spaces that maybe in the past you wouldn't have been as excited about? Yeah, just about. under park. The access is a little different, but the population around them is really high, and the uh, uh, multifamily units are going up exponentially around them, and the neighborhood's changing a little bit, and although you can't change the parking fields in some of these because they're usually a fixed constraint, the way the buildings were worked out, unless you go in and put structured parking, which is really expensive. But if, you, if Uber allows you to get those trips up, uh, especially in the evening, and it's safer, right? If the people are going to be consuming alcohol, I'd prefer for them to Uber in and Uber out. But I think I think Uber might put some real estate in play that traditionally hasn't been great for restaurants in the past um, as more and more consumers go to that kind of transportation at night. Awesome. Um, one more thing. You, you, were, you were telling me before we started recording here, I thought it was a really cool um, example of thoughtful, unconventional uh, marketing, if you will, uh, talk about the the, the Leroy Fox uh, political signs and, and why you why you did that and what prompted that. Yeah, so uh, two elections ago, um, I was taking my kids to the library and I saw a slew of election signs for local candidates and national candidates and Congress and Senate and judges and sheriffs and. It just dawned on me that the signage ordinance for political signs was way more lenient than temporary signs that were allowed to be put in front of the restaurant for whatever reason. There's all these regulations that you always have to um, abide by. And so I Googled Leroy Fox to see if anyone was named Leroy Fox. I felt like the name of our restaurant was uh, clearly in the gray. And there were a couple people that had not so great records uh, pop up in the Google search, but I thought to myself, perfect. This is a real person. The city can never get me on this one. And hopefully I'm not ruining my future ability to do these campaign signs. But we, uh, we manufactured yard signs and we put them up in front of houses all over the city and the customers loved them. And we made bumper stickers. It was uh, both Leroy Fox bumper stickers. And uh, we had an election party and all these parents brought their kids up. We had a little fake ballot thing at the front. And um, it was a 
really great impression value, low cost impression value campaign for us because we had some older customers would come into the restaurant and tell us, I spent 30 minutes on the internet trying to figure out who this Leroy Fox candidate was. And then my buddy told me that was your restaurant. Now I'm here. And so we, although I felt bad that they spent so much time on the internet in a futile pursuit, uh, I was very happy that they made it to the end place and we got a good laugh out of it. So that was a really fun campaign for us. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the future, but hopefully we can keep that going. Well, I mean, which which speaks to sort of a, a, a bigger point about marketing and creating awareness for your brand. I mean, do you typically try to do things that are unique or unconventional, or was that just a one-off type thing, or what do you typically you know, try to do to... You know, we... Um, all right, this is a tricky one for the podcast and for books, because there's children involved. I don't know how. I don't know how. That's you okay. Put this. I'm going to disclose it, and then you can try to no keep worries. the secret the best that you can. So, um, for years now at Leroy Fox, we have a magical mailbox that my wife made that's by the host stand in the front of the restaurant, and we have a printout. And the hostess, when she seats families, will give the kids a little piece of paper, and it has a uh, a little wish list thing for Santa Claus and what will I read? What will I wear? What would I like? Blah, blah, blah. And then on the back, um, there's a little funny section that has a mailing address and a little box for the parents to check on whether their kid was naughty or nice. And so it's usually, I think last year we did almost 400. I think it was close to 400 last year. And so these kids fill them out, and most of them don't have uh, the best penmanship. Some of them are illegible for sure. Some of them give me an address with no zip codes. But when you take on the role of Santa Claus, when it relates to small children and bar patrons, too, that are older, that write all kinds of letters to Santa, um, (laughs) I go in and handwrite letters back to them all. And I have a trick, and it works pretty good. Um, But you have a great responsibility when you are (laughs) holding yourself out as the true Santa Claus to respond to these little children's letters. And you have to use a pen that you dip in ink, and you have to have good stationery, and you have to have great penmanship, and you cannot misspell the child's name. Santa Claus would never do that. And so there are these things that I've thought about. You cannot reference gifts that you would ever put a parent in a bad situation where they may or may not have the means to buy the gift for the child. So the language in the letter has to be specific. And I spend a considerable amount of time crafting these letters and my assistant reads them and I get help, but I handwrite all the envelopes um, back And at one point I took all these letters to the post office and I asked the lady if they could stamp them like in the movies where they look like they came from all over the world. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, sir, (laughs) no one does that in real life. That's just in the movies. So I I bought all these stamps and I had probably six different colors. And I took all these stamps and I would stamp the envelopes like crazy to make it look like the elf stamped the envelopes. Um, And so we've done various, uh, iterations of this over the years but it is super fun and probably more rewarding for me 
than it is for the children that get the letters. But um, it's always great to see the families come back and the parents are laughing. And um, this has really little to do with operating a restaurant, but we have, we go to great lengths to make sure that the address and the zip codes are right. Even when we can't read them, I go on the Mecklenburg County real estate lookup and I look up the address and find out the parents' names. And sometimes I had to go to Facebook and stalk the mom to make sure I had the kids spelling right. So a lot of work to be Santa Claus. So we, uh, you know, we do that more just to make the world a better place. And I think we get brand equity out of it and it's a little bit unique and people, uh, bring their children every year for it, and it's grown every year. It's getting rather burdensome. I may need some elves to help me in the future. But the best that is- for the kids that I know is the children that I know, especially some that are really great friends of ours who are having particular difficulties with their children, get custom letters trying to adjust the children's behavior from a Santa Claus point of view on behalf of the parents. And some of them have been rather comical to hear the stories back of the parents uh, telling me the faces their kids made when Santa Claus called them out on a particular deficiency. That is brilliant, man. I, now, are y'all doing that? When do you start it? Because I'm. This is nothing. Sorry, so, to the listeners. I want to bring my kids. We're, we're, we we yeah, I mean, we 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 so, we love your restaurant, but when when can we come? Because my my kids would love that. So unlike other retailers, I have a rule that the mailbox goes up the day after Thanksgiving. I think there's something super unholy about starting Christmas uh, prior to Thanksgiving being over. So we wait. And that day is the day that the mailbox shows up. And uh, we were working our stationery. Now, my kids um, for sure get letters that they do believe are still from Santa Claus. And I have adjusted some behavior between my three boys with these letters that really was pretty impressive i would have to say uh and my wife would probably agree that's fantastic man that's awesome um i love it so that answers the question about your 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 approach (laughs) um doing things a little bit differently i think that's really great man that's uh what a wonderful story um well so um well, last thing is now, tell me about the your involvement now uh, as interim CEO here at a brewery. I mean, you've got three restaurants that you're running, and you were you were so you were just you were an investor at Sugar Creek, right? Set this up for me. Yeah, so um, my brother's really great friend from high school went to Charlotte Catholic with us, Joe Vogelbacher. He is a he was a home brewer. He made excellent beer. He's been making beer since we were in our early 20s as a passion of his. And um, this is kind of before craft beer became uh, the mania that it potentially is today. And so John at Old Mecklenburg Brewery was going to sell his brewery. And Joe was living in Jersey and wanted to move back to North Carolina. And so uh, we put it on our contract just to help him move his family back here because he had said that he wanted to start a brewery and the opportunity presented itself. We helped him raise some money here locally and put a little bit of money up um, through a trust that I don't own. So I am, uh, I, we, we have some money up through a trust that is, uh, you know, set up for our children and their children that has a trustee that's in charge of it. But I was not ever, one that wanted to learn how to make beer or brew beer 
um, just really a uh, venture to help Joe and his family and, um, and get them down here. So Joe's a Navy reservist and his three kids and just got deployed, um, in the beginning of September, the, the army under the individual augmentee program came over into the Navy reserves and activated a bunch of Navy reservists and sent them to an army base in Afghanistan. So Joe is currently stationed in Kabul, Afghanistan. And he came to me before he left and asked me if I would, on behalf of his family, um, come over here and be the interim CEO for the year that he's gone. So I am here. I'm actually uh, talking to you from the tap room. And um, I've learned more about making beer than I ever wanted to know in my whole life. I think Joe and his team make exceptional beer. And uh, when he gets back, I might throw the keys at him. I actually told him to wear a, a baseball glove the day he gets back. He asked me why. I said, because when you come through the door, I'm going to throw these keys at your head. That's hilarious. So, I mean, what is um, what what is your biggest challenge with um, running that, other than the fact that you've also got three restaurants, but specific to the brewery, what do you find to be um, the most challenging thing about it? Yeah, you know, the brewery is a, a very unique business. Um, I think... Uh, the guys that are girls that make beer, um, there are a lot of steps and there are a lot of things that you can do wrong. And there's a lot of reasons why you can get off flavors and beers. And it is a very precise cooking process, if you will. And um, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. You have living organisms. Um, and the cultures, you know, that eat the sugars that produce the alcohol and they accelerate at different rates. And uh, to make consistent beer is rather challenging, which I think is maybe part of the problem with craft breweries around is that getting consistent beer is quite difficult. I think the team at Sugar Creek does a great job of making consistent beer. Um, although like every company, right, we have our issues that we have to overcome. The hardest thing for me is that I don't know anything about making beer. I've never made beer. And so to be in charge of a company, although temporarily, um, when you don't specifically know about the processes, you rely heavily on the team to give you information on what capital needs they have, why equipment broke down. Uh, and for sure, I'm not an engineer or an expert, so I have to just trust that they give me the best information, and for the most part, I think that they do, um, except Joe would be able to tell them, no, that's not right, or no, you did this wrong, or no, you need to retest this or change this process, and we could not buy this extra piece of equipment, uh, and so it's a challenge when you're not an expert in a manu. This is a manufacturing business, so the difference between run a brewery and run a restaurant is the brewery is a manufacturing business. Hmm. Uh so, you know, you have uh, a warehouse with uh, managing, um, I mean, it's not too dissimilar to a restaurant, just uh, it's just way different. Well, um, so you've got you've got your year there, and then um, you guys have had the three, you, you opened the three restaurants in relatively short order, as you said. Um, do you intend to continue to grow the, the restaurant group, or is there a certain concept you think you'll um, yeah, so um, band on. Yeah, so Seth, Andrew, and I run a long short equity fund 
uh, during the day, which is our primary job. And then we've done the operating companies in the restaurants, like I told you, kind of as an experiment that went better than we could have ever imagined. And so we've continued to do them, and we've worked really hard at getting great managers and putting together um, the you know, our, our culture and our systems. We are negotiating right now for another Leroy Fox. Uh, I actually got least comments back this morning. So um, maybe in the next seven or eight months, we'll have that store open. And we actually have a new concept that we have been toying with that we have a menu almost finished. We got some tweaks and we are actively looking for a spot to put that. We had a spot uh, in Elizabeth, and the landlord, uh, it's a rather unique situation, but I don't believe that we're going to be able to get to come to terms on the space, so we're going to be back in the market looking for a home for that. So good news is we're going to duplicate Leroy Fox, have a second store, and hopefully take what we learned at the first one and see if uh, see if we were lucky or if we were good and let you know how the result, the result of the second store once it gets operational. And then um, this new concept I'm really excited about, and uh, hopefully we'll find a location for that here in the next month or so, and we'll have another one coming on the back end of that. So hopefully we'll be at five by the end of the year, end of next year, sorry. Awesome, man. Well, congrats on that. Is there is there any um, sort of parting advice or anything you that we maybe getting discussed that you would want to articulate to folks that are thinking about getting into the restaurant business that may look, look at what you've done and, and you know, read the book or hear the podcast and are trying to learn what they can? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think the business is really about the customers. And so I think where we've had some success is every decision that we've made has really been about whether or not it was in the best interest of the customers. And then we just sort of manage the result, the business result on our side afterwards. And I think for us, we kind of had a core philosophy, although we love to win a James Beard Award. We, we feel like if we play really great food that is of considerable value to the customer for the quantity that they're getting, the price that they're paying, and we source the best ingredients that we can, um, you know, that if we take care of the customer and provide exceptional service, and we're really serious about making their day a little bit better, we can be in business for a long time without the best food. And sometimes I think people get really caught on really being just about the food and kind of going to that elitist side. And I think it's, it's, it's hard because the customer expectation and that type of environment is that the food has to be perfect. And if it's not, you've held yourself out to such a high standard that it's hard to manage that expectation. And so right. for us, we've tried the opposite. We've tried to way over deliver from what we've promised to the customer. And we like to step over one foot bars versus trying to jump over a four foot bar. So I think for us, you know, and you've seen people with a different model that have probably been way more successful at us at restaurants. So I don't know if there's any one model that's right or wrong, but all the models are kind of an extension of you. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're yourself and you really care about your customers, I think you do great in the business. In a great stroke irony, one of the best managers that we ever had is now working for Danny Meyer in New York City, which does make me cry. So. <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. 
Well, look, I will. I mean, again, this is you know, I have some personal insight on this because I've I've been to your places, and and you guys do. I never thought of it that way, but you do over deliver um, because you're not out. You know, I mean, I, even like when you catered my wife's 40th birthday, people were blown away, um, and that was not even the restaurant experience. It was just your catering experience, but the food was fantastic. I mean, it was just fantastic. Uh, you probably picked up a ton of new customers from that just because, you know, they may have heard of it, but it's a little bit far away from where we are in town. But everybody was really, really, really blown away. Um, even I was, and I had been to your restaurant a bunch of times. But I think you do, in all three, um, uh, have done a really good job of that, and that's that's a that's a great great piece of advice because you kind of come in there and it, you know you, you don't expect bad food by any means. You expect you know have good food, but then you kind of go and you go, man, this is really good <laughs> and it's a good value and the service is great so i really i really uh tip my hat to what y'all have done sean and, and uh congratulate you because it's um i mean you're really doing <clears throat> wonderful work here in charlotte and you guys are high, highly regarded and everybody I ever run into that's been in any of your places feels the same so um folks that are listening this i mean he's you know they, they really are doing um fantastic work and and uh clearly have a, a good philosophy they're able to, to execute on really well and, and I'm sure that when you go figure out whether you're lucky or good it's it's uh it's gonna be the latter. So um congrats on growing and uh all that you have going on and thank you ton man for taking the time because you do have so much going on. So I really appreciate this. Listen, I appreciate you thinking of us and I just tell you if if any success that we've had, I think we've just put together a really great group of people. And some of our best ideas have come from places where you may not think you would get a great idea. And so, I mean, our management staff and our bartenders and our servers and our busboys and our front of the house people and our back of the house people and our catering manager, our marketing people, uh, I mean, they just come to work happy every day and they work really hard to try to make the customers have a great day. And uh, so for us, I appreciate all your kind words, and I would tell you that really the 100% probably goes back to the team, and uh, we are very blessed to have some great people. Awesome, man. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and uh, we will be in there soon after Thanksgiving for sure. And uh, yeah. drop some. So I'm gonna. I'm sorry, I have to say it. I'm gonna make life a little. Harder though, even though more rewarding, as you said, for you because you're going to have three letters, uh, three additional ones at least to uh, to write this year. So, um, listen, that's, that's Santa, awesome. loves, Santa loves writing those letters. All right, man, that's awesome, Sean. Well, hey, listen, I'll let you get back to it. I really appreciate it a ton, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. All right, man. See you. Bye.